Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of my favorite gifts on the internet is that one of Issa Rae saying growth and making the little sprouting motion with her hand. Just think of that as the entire context for me talking about Jane Austen. Howdy, addict wives and lit witches. This is Emily Edwards, the host of Fuckboys of Literature. You may notice that this episode is coming to you live and free across places like iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you've been subscribed and listening to Fuckboys of Lit. For the last two months, we've had our episodes behind a paywall over on Patreon at patreon.com slash fuckboysoflit, where I've posted episodes like Lolita with Esme Weijun Wang and a bunch of other truly, truly phenomenal episodes. If you're still subscribed here, I would hope desperately that you'd consider tossing us a buck and continuing to subscribe over behind the Patreon paywall. We've got a whole host of great episodes in the can for you for the remainder of the year. Again, this is just a nice little suggestion and a nice little plea to hope that if you still love FBOL and our Twitter account and everything else that we post across the internet, that you might consider a simple monthly dollar donation. So without much further ado, we're going to jump into the Pride and Prejudice episode, and we'll see you at the end of the show. All right, everyone, with me today is Becca, the voice behind the blog, Book It With Becca. How the hell are you doing today? I am doing really well. You know, the world is crazy and hectic, but any day I can sit down with someone and talk about a book... That's a good day for me. Yeah, you know, I I have found definitely over like the last year and a half, especially that like the almost normalcy of sitting down and having like a book club chat with someone a couple times a week has been really a very calming effect. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, it's a nice little cultural shorthand and it's a way to meet new people and give you something to talk about, which is really nice. (laughs) Yes, I mean, as an awkward little girl growing up, Books have just been a great way for me to form connections with people and get me out of my shell when I don't really know how to talk about, you know, like, oh, where did you go to school and things like that. I I completely agree. Like, I'm actually like one of the shyest people I know. Um, And I think that would probably surprise a lot of people who only know my voice from the show because it doesn't seem like I'm very shy, but I am actually. This is terrifying, but you seem like a very nice person. And today we're going to talk about what I think is possibly the internet's favorite book. 
<laughs> you might be onto something there. <laughs> so this is actually our second show on Pride and Prejudice. And I want to say that because our first episode on it was actually one of the first episodes that we recorded. And it sounded like crap because I had like three guests and we were all very excited. So I got a lot of complaints about the way it sounded. And I also didn't really like the conversation that we had because I was new at it. So I thought, let's sit down with someone who's very cool, who is a friend of a friend, who was already on the show, and let's talk about this extremely weighty book. And I don't think it's weighty because of the content of the book, but the expectations of the book. Absolutely. Um, you know, talking about Pride and Prejudice just brings in so many different layers because you're talking about Jane Austen herself. You're talking about what she's actually writing. Mm -hmm. And then you're also talking about, you know, two other layers. You're talking about how she has been adapted and marketed yeah. to us, how the publishers represent her. And then you're also talking about the perception of her and what she's doing and the perception of what she's doing can be miles apart. Yes. I think that's really, really, really astute because when I read Jane Austen, I, it feels like an old text to me because, you know, it's got all the social rules of the Regency era. It's, you know, the I don't read a lot of romance. So like the primary focus is coupling and marriage, which doesn't happen. You know, that kind of takes a backseat in a lot of, you know, modern literature for women where it's just like oh the marriage or the love story might be incidental or happenstance where it's like pride and prejudice is like what is the goal of the story marriage for five girls <laughs> oh i'm dying oh yeah i i think that definitely i know a lot of people who feel that same way about it and you know get kind of scared of it for that reason because it's so it's like like you said, weight of expectations, but also, you know, it's been presented to us so many times as, you know, the great romance. Yeah. You know, it's the one. I mean, if you want to get into Mr. Darcy and the whole impact he has had right. on our Western culture, it's really intimidating. And you get these ideas like, oh, it's going to be you know, super romantic and it's all about love and everything is perfect and ideal and Austin is actually over here saying, oh, look at all these problems. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, oh, this is not the perfect guy. No. He's going to work. Yeah. But he's not perfect. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> the problems with Darcy literally are the way we're introduced with Dar to Darcy. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very jarring, again, for someone who doesn't involve myself with a lot of, like, deeply romantic texts. Um, I will say romantic not as... Like the school, I read a lot. Like romance, I don't am not familiar with. This is like so jumbling yeah. <laughs> because like it's capital R versus lowercase R versus like bodice rippers versus like you know <laughs> what it, old school romance, and it's just like ah, there's so much when it comes to literature. Yeah. Well, and then with Austin, you know, she did read a lot of the capital R romantics and draw on that for her work, and then also you know back when she was writing, it was at a time where the romance genre isn't at all how we know it today, yeah. uh, which is not, you know, to say better or worse in any way. I'll just put it out there. I love the romance genre. Um, 
but you know, that's, I kind of hesitate to apply that term to Austin yeah. because it feels a little anachronistic. Um, and because I think she's doing something different and this is not at all a dig at the romance genre. No, totally. I just want to make that clear for readers. You know, there's a lot of great things happening in that genre and you can do some really great, you know, character work and yes, social commentary with romance novels. But I, for me, I think how I break down the difference in my head is, okay, is the romance, the point is everything that happens in the novel, you know, happening to drive forward the romance story. Is that, you know, where it's at? And I feel like with Jane Austen, it's more like she's using romance as a tool to tell other messages and ask other questions. So she's kind of, but also at the same time, she is very romantic. So, you know, kind of in a gray area there. I would would love to see more fundamentally agree with you because I started reading this again last night for like, and I plowed through it and I remind, I was reminded at just how deeply farcical Jane Austen stories almost always Mm -hmm. are because like it, I, I never really gotten the tone of Mrs. Bennett correct until this last reread where you realize that she is just frenzied and it's, it's, it's unhinged it's screwball in a way where she's just kind of like I've got five girls they have no talents like what am I going to do and it's it's hilarious it's deeply deeply farcical and I don't know if Jane Austen is often given credit for being as funny and satirical as she really is I think it depends on who you're talking to yeah because I know a lot of people who really get that about her and really just find her hilarious. And then there are some people who, you know, don't see it, mm-hmm. um, maybe because they're not used to reading the language that she uses, That's which true. can be a barrier. Um, or maybe because they're seeing it all through rose-tinted glasses and think it's, you know, all very romantic and yeah. soft. And just like, mm. She's doing some pretty biting stuff there. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, just how the book starts with that very famous first line of a man with, you know, I'm going to butcher it because I don't memorize it. You know, a man in possession of a good, great fortune must be in want of a wife or something along those lines. Very close. Cool. Close enough is usually good (laughs) enough for this show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like... The, the best part is, is that it doesn't seem like any men are actually in want of a wife. <laughs> Not really. I mean, Bingley is open to it. Yeah. But, you know, Bingley is Bingley. He's like, as long as she's hot enough, that will be great. Yeah. And it's like, if she's nice and she'll talk to me. Yeah. He's basically a puppy. Yeah. And as long as my sisters don't treat her like dirt, we're, we're on good we're on good even keel. We'll we'll make it happen. And it's like, okay, yeah. he's the most desirous of a wife, and he's very passive about it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's just like, oh, she's pretty, and then just follows her around for the next yeah. few months without really thinking about it. <laughs> and that it's like the truth universally acknowledged amongst moms of five daughters is that yes. rich men <laughs> should be married to one of their daughters. <laughs> I 
love that, you know, when in that first chapter, Mrs. Bennett is, you know, berating and begging Mr. Bennett Mm -hmm. by terms, oh, you have to go and visit him, you know, and she basically promises him that if he goes and visits, visits Mr. Bingley, you know, which is kind of how they can be introduced if the husband meets him first, then, you know, he will surely marry one of their daughters. And later on, um, you know, after Bingley has been away and he comes back and Mrs. Bennett is asking him again, oh, you must go and visit him. You must right away. And he's like, no, I won't. Last time you promised me he would marry one of my daughters and he didn't. <laughs> so, so yeah, funny. I know, like Jane Austen, she was such a good observer of people. And it really comes through in her writing with, you know, the comedy and the drama. And you listen to exchanges like that. And you're just like, she knew couples she knew like that. <laughs> I know couples like yeah, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I, it's just so funny. Is that I just don't think I understood the, the hilarious nature of Pride and Prejudice until I had read Lady Susan, which is mm. the epistolary novel where she's just having so many machinations in order to marry into wealth. And it's really great. If you haven't read it, we did an episode on it. Um, and it took like, it takes like an hour and a half to read. Like it's such a short little novella. Um, and I had not really occurred to me that she didn't take marriage seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have someone like Mr. Darcy who does not want to marry Pot. I don't think he does. I don't think he's really thought about it. Yeah. I mean, his aunt is always going on about, oh, well, naturally, you're going to marry your cousin, which gross. Yeah. Um, but he never really gives any indication that he's looking or interested or anything until Elizabeth shows up and he's like, oh, she's kind of pretty and she's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he just fights it the whole step of the way. So no, I don't think he's particularly interested in an attachment yeah. of any kind. Yeah. It, it's, it's reveal. It's revealing that he doesn't seem to want a lap dog. Like he doesn't want a wife who's just going to sit there and fawn over him because I think that's too much attention. But at the same time, like the the fighting the tooth and nail to me i feel like mr darcy after doing this show for like a bajillion years now mr darcy is up there with one of the big fuck boys of literature oh yeah yeah for sure and i think a big part of that comes from like not it's weird because i think a lot of his fuck boyishness comes from a place of wanting to help help people who matter to him Mm -hmm. and caring and just the problem is he thinks that he's right right that's where the fuckboyness comes in he thinks that he's right and he thinks that he has the right to do something about it um so you know it's kind of different from other fuckboys where they're just doing their merry little thing Mm -hmm. and leaving disaster in their wake and no he is very intentionally you know thinking things through, but just totally wrong about it. Yes. Like, you think of fuckboys of literature and you think of someone like Lord Byron, who's just like, party hardy, let, let's go hard. I'm going to literally, like, vantilize the Sphinx with my, like, name in when I go to Egypt. Like, that's some bullshit behavior. 
But yeah. Darcy isn't that fun. Even after he starts to <laughs> like Elizabeth, he's not that much fun. He's like the epitome of staid and responsible. And, you know, he is the respectable English gentleman. Um, but he's just, yeah, he's just wrong. And he, <laughs> just wrong. he keeps causing trouble. <laughs> Like he starts off at wet blanket and then like <laughs> slightly just moves to damp sweater. And it's just like such a bummer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> I can't breathe. <laughs> Thank you. That's the nicest compliment I can ever get. <laughs> I just, I love that description. Wow. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, he he really doesn't change that much in material ways, you know, through the novel. I think he does get a little bit smarter and he learns a few lessons, but he's still essentially the same person. And, you know, as we see in the final few chapters, it takes a really long time for Elizabeth to kind of get him used to being laughed at. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, oh, wow, he must be really stayed and repressed if he can't take a little bit of teasing. Yeah, seriously. Like, I'm a very sensitive person. So usually if anybody's like, I once got very upset when a friend of mine told me that like the shirt I was wearing had like a loud print. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, I'm just like that sensitive. But um, yeah, you're not supposed to be that sensitive if you're the one person for like, 50 circular miles who's making 10 grand a year like you're the alpha dog here man yeah yeah oh my goodness he's but that's one of the things that I really love about him too so you know while I will quibble with people saying that Darcy is the romantic ideal upon whom we should base all romantic ideals we're gonna and come heroes, back to that <laughs> oh yeah we're gonna come back to that I really love him as a character as Austin is actually writing him mm -hmm. because he is very like just hilariously awkward like the man does not know what to do with himself yes. or how to talk to people there's there's this bit I noticed for the first time when I was rereading this um the past week or so where it's very early in the book and he has just started to realize that he's kind of attracted to Elizabeth, but still thinks it's, you know, no biggie. Yeah. Um, and they're at some party or dinner or something. And it says, you know, like he had become to become, he had started to become interested in talking to her and as a step toward doing that himself, because he didn't know how he started to go and kind of stand on the fringes of other conversations she's having with people <laughs> and just kind of like, like a total creeper. <laughs> um, but, you know, because he doesn't know how to talk to the girl, even though he is like the most powerful man in the room. Um, so he's just kind of like going and hoping that if he stands on the edge there, maybe he'll somehow get drawn into the conversation, which is hilarious and sad, really but also... Sad. Yeah, but also really relatable because I have been that person oh, who's yeah. just like, I don't have anyone to talk to here, but I kind of know these people. So I'm just going to go stand by them while they're talking mm -hmm. and see if something and happens. To God, I can interject and say something <laughs> that's not humiliating. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, right. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately for him, Elizabeth already hates him. um, So she thinks he's just there to criticize and things happen. God, I wonder why she thinks that. (laughs) Oh, I can't imagine why. He's so- not handsome enough to tempt me. Oh my God. Like I, that is just one of the meanest things I think has ever been written. It's like, it's worse and, than physically hurting someone. Yeah. And he says it so casually too. I mean, Darcy has no game. None. And he has, he has manners in the term, in, you know, the sense that he is, educated and knows how things go, mm-hmm. but not in the sense that he actually knows what he should and should not say. Right. Or, you know, how to at least act nice to people that he doesn't particularly like. Right. Like he could have just said, I'm not feeling well. That's why I'm not dancing. Uh, you know, just like, or I don't dance. That's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. And I mean, he's talking to his friend Bingley, who is, as far as we know, his best friend. So, you know, it should be enough for him to say, Bingley, I don't really know anyone. He does say that. Yeah. He does say, I don't know anyone. Um, and, you know, just leave it at that. Yeah. But, you know, when Bingley says, oh, you know, there's Jane's sister. She seems nice. He didn't have to say anything. Yeah. He could have just said, Thanks, I'm but- good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit improper in that society to leave a girl as a wallflower when there's already a shortage of men. Right. But, you know, it's okay. You can do his thing. Just don't be an ass about it. Like if it was in London, I feel like there would be like, "Mm, this is really not cool. But like they're out in the sticks. This is not, you know, the most formal situation. Nobody's wearing a brand new dress. Like it's okay. It's okay. But like, man, he just, he just goes straight for the kill on that. And it doesn't make a ton of sense. I think it just goes back to the fact that he is very socially awkward. Yeah. Um, He just, and he does say a couple of times, you know, I'm not comfortable with people that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one really great passage where he says, you know, I have trouble talking to people with whom I am not on familiar terms um, because, you know, I cannot catch their tone. I, I don't know what is going on. And I feel like that is really interesting character work and um, actually a really relatable part of his character. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not ideal. It's not romantic, but it's, it's something that happens. I feel like a lot of us can relate to that. Um, and he just... You know, when he is not comfortable, he does not show to best effect. Yeah. You know, it, it all of this is happening, all the characterization is happening, what, 250 years before we've had open discussions about like anxiety disorders and autism yeah. spectrum disorders. And so it's like, it's nice to know that that kind of personality and those sorts of personality traits um, were acknowledged or at least seen by people, maybe just yeah. Jane Austen. Um and, and it's good to know that there is, because he's not vilified exactly, He but there's sort of compassion for the fact that he just, he's just doesn't do this. It just doesn't work for him. And yeah. it's nice. It is. Um, 
I think that's one of the things Austin is good at is making characters very human where even when they mess up or there are things that are really not cool about them, there's still something that kind of brings you back. Or if there's a really cool character, there's something that makes you kind of tilt your head and ask questions a bit. But I, I did want to say, you know, I have, I have heard people talk about the reading where Darcy's on the spectrum and I love that. Me too. I think it's so cool. That's one of the things I really love about reading older books is that, you know, the the language we have changes, the understanding that we have about people and, you know, different conditions, different kinds of people, that changes, but people are essentially the same. So even if you know, Austin wouldn't have been able to articulate why Mm -hmm. someone like Darcy is the way that he is. She can still, you know, as a good observer of human nature, see a person like that and, you know, portray it well on the page. And then we can go back and say, oh, well, it could have been that. Yeah. You know, same thing with uh, medical conditions. I've heard people doing that, you know, going back and reading books and being, well, they called it, you know, um, what is it? I'm forgetting the word consumption. Oh yeah. Um, but it could have been, you know, tuberculosis or it could have been something else. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh, that's cool. They don't know what they're describing, but they're doing it. Yeah. I saw like a whole Twitter thread related, but completely not related to Pride and Prejudice, just my side of like, I saw a whole Twitter thread the other day about how a lot of like haunted house narratives are actually like they fall in line with carbon monoxide poisoning and how like, yes. you know, you get confused, you forget things happen, you know, you, you see things, you see apparitions or and stuff like that. It's all in line with carbon monoxide poisoning. And I'm like, holy cow, that that's fantastic. That's so damn neat. I know. And it's science. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, but back to our regular topic of conversation. Mm. I liked the fact that you mentioned that, you know, the, the characters you're supposed to root for in Jane Austen novels, and specifically this one, you have Lizzie Bennet. She's not perfect. And I mm-hmm. think as probably one of um, the greatest literary stand-ins for feisty young ladies that we all love ourselves to be, it's her and Joe from Little Women. And mm-hmm. um, Lizzie's kind of shitty sometimes. <laughs> she is. She's very shitty sometimes. And, you know, she has this whole arc of, you know, starting out as the feisty, feisty young woman And then realizing, oh, I was so caught up in my own cleverness Mm -hmm. that I didn't actually know how to judge people properly. You know, I like, can I get really nerdy? Oh, go for it. Yes. I love really Um, nerdy. Okay. So this is something I noticed this time and I want to go back and reread it again to confirm that what I think I saw is actually what I saw. But as I was reading, you know, in the first part of the book, the first two volumes, I mm-hmm. think, um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, so-and-so appeared, had the likeness of, mm-hmm. you know, seemed to be a lot of talk about how people seem, how they look, their appearances, you know, you know, seemed like a gentleman, mm-hmm. seemed affable, amiable, all those things. And then in the final, you know, arc really after she gets 
the letter from Darcy. Mm-hmm. It seems like Austin is shifting more to concrete language. You know, she's saying Definitely. Elizabeth saw, mm-hmm. she observed, mm-hmm. you know, so it's shifting from Elizabeth, Impressions. you know, ex- yeah, accepting those first impressions and, you know, those appearances to actually looking at a person and thinking about what they're actually doing and who they actually are instead of just getting caught up in her own ideas of it, which, yeah, Yeah. impressions, you know, the original title was First Impressions, and you can really see that throughout the novel. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's brilliant. Um, I think... There's, I mean, obviously, you know, you have the the parallel maturation of Lizzie and Darcy of growing up and growing together, which is just, it is really lovely and it is very romantic. Um, But it is important for people to remember that Lizzie starts out childish and petty as, you know, as much as, like, she's not perfect, which I think is one of my biggest frustrations with how the book is perceived thanks to maybe adaptations and proliferation into society. Whereas a lot of, I feel like a lot of people want there to be, like, the perfect lady who was wronged and then, you know, got the husband in the end. And it's like, hold up, dial it back. Yeah, that's actually the sort of thing that Austin is working against Mm -hmm. a little bit, Um, you know, more obviously in Northanger Abbey, which is very much, you know, a send up of the Gothic novels, you know, with the pure young maiden. Um, And she's just like, no, Catherine is very sensible and plain and she doesn't think about things in such dramatic terms. But with Pride and Prejudice, yeah, it's very subtle character work, really good growth, you know. um, But yeah, we tend to think of her as, also, you know, the ideal woman. And it's just like, no, what makes her so wonderful is all her flaws and her ability to learn from them, you know, to realize that she was wrong. Mm -hmm. She made a mistake and then really look within and, you know, adjust herself accordingly. It doesn't make her a different person. It doesn't take away from all the wonderful things we love about Mm -hmm. her, but it just, it makes her stronger and more beautiful, you know, as a person inside. And I think that makes her, you know, uh, an even more aspirational figure 
yeah. than if she were just like, nope, she's right and Darcy's wrong and he has to learn from it, yeah, which he exactly. does, but it's it's not one-sided. They both have to grow up. Yeah. I feel like the collective understanding, like the collective zeitgeist concept of Pride and Prejudice mm. is like you have the strong lady who's going to stand in a field until the man comes around and it's like, no, 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 God damn it. <laughs> No. <laughs> I I really love Pride and Prejudice and like I said I love the romance genre but I think that yeah zeitgeist that cultural perception really has created some uncomfortable and problematic tropes mm-hmm. in you know, not just romance genre novels, but, you know, romantic comedy films, things like that, you know, where we, you know, we set Elizabeth and Darcy as the template for bickering and enemies to lovers. And, you know, you can follow that really well, or you can not because you don't see the nuance of it. You know, you make her too, perfect and feisty and sassy Mm -hmm. and, you know, always right. And you make him too brooding and romantic and, you know, just misunderstood, which he's, he's, it's not. I don't think anybody misunderstands Darcy. I think there's like a, an expectation that he's not going to meet or inclined to meet Mm -hmm. and people, and even Mrs. Bennett is just kind of like, then don't bother with him. And it's just like, okay, (laughs) like that is a perfectly acceptable way to go around with like a person you meet and you don't necessarily (laughs) click with. And you can just be like, hats off to you and carry on. Well, except Mrs. Bennett is incredibly rude to him. (laughs) Mrs. Bennett is trash and I kind of love her. Oh my goodness, she's such a mess. But like, even like when Jane is sick and she comes back to visit, she comes to, uh, oh gosh, Netherfield Park to visit. She's being really rude to Darcy and he's actually being kind of nice for once. And she's just over here sniping at him and I'm like, oh woman, stop. The Bennets are fascinating to me because there is absolutely no reason for them to expect that their daughters are going to marry this rich like i don't quite understand why she's just kind of like there's loon there's like rumors of this man's (laughs) ultimate fortune surely he's going to marry one of my five daughters that haven't been married off even to regular townsfolk yet that's like why do you think this woman why (laughs) you know i really don't know. There are some things I just don't understand about how Mrs. Bennett's mind works. Uh, she just, she has these expectations. I don't think she really lives in the real world. Yeah. I think that's the problem. Um, and I think that could very likely be a point that Austin is making about the education of women, mm-hmm. which is another theme running through the novel, you know, um, about how women are sheltered and coddled or how, you know, they're not given enough schooling and understanding of the real world so that they can survive in it, yeah. really. And Mrs. Bennett was very lucky um, to be pretty when yeah. she was young and still apparently quite handsome and catch the eye of, you know, a landed, you know, 
gentleman like Mr. Bennett, who was charmed by her and married her right away. And then was like, oh, I can't have a conversation with her. He's got the patience for her, but... He does sometimes, and sometimes he just yeah. goes off into his library. And um, I mean, if you want to talk about fuckboys of the book, I think he is the ultimate one. I would tend to agree with you <laughs> because he knows what is supposed to happen for his daughters. He knows the tools they need. And he really stresses that the only one he values is Lizzie. And... Even still, he doesn't give her the toolkit she needs in order to go on and meet societal expectations. Yeah. I mean, he's very funny. Yeah. Um, And he does. I think we get fooled by that a lot. Um, Going back to cultural perception, we tend to love Mr. Bennett. Yeah. And he is fun and he does have some good qualities. But yeah, he just won't be bothered by any of them. You know, barely even by Lizzie. And she's his favorite. Um, you know, there are so many times in the novel where he needs to step up mm-hmm. and do something, whether it is internal or external within the family. And he just, he doesn't because it's too much trouble. It's annoying. It's a bother. Yeah. And it's really sad, especially to watch Elizabeth learn to recognize that mm-hmm. because in the beginning, you know, she kind of thinks she knows, you know, that her dad isn't perfect. Yeah. Um, but she really loves him and she likes him and it's her and him or it's her and Jane. Um, but then as the novel goes on, she really becomes aware of how her father's behavior is just as damaging as her mom's yeah. in a lot of ways. And how he too has really failed his daughters by not looking after them by not being more engaged, by not being firmer when he needed to be firm, as with Lydia going to Brighton mm-hmm. and, you know, putting his own comfort first. And you can see that it just, it devastates her. Yeah. And that's another big part of her growing up. And, you know, she doesn't have a big dramatic fuss about it. She doesn't go crying on the moors, right. um, but it hurts her yeah. and she feels it and she feels you know, she's able to recognize that ripple down effect that, you know, two decades of that kind of behavior has had on her family and her sisters and what, you know, disaster that can lead them to. Yeah. I, it's so gutting when you realize that really Lydia's uh, downfall, for lack of a better world, word, yeah. is honestly because of neglect. It's honestly it because she's like, the youngest and everybody's just focused on getting Jane and Lizzie off their hands and they can't even really bother to remember to parent their last kid yeah it's neglect and it's also over overindulgence yeah. from Mrs. Bennett because she is Mrs. Bennett's favorite and Mrs. Bennett is not the most like not the best influence she she can't really guide her and everyone else just kind of writes her off Lydia or rather Kitty follows Lydia's lead Mm -hmm. and she's just kind of given her own way. And the girl is 15. Yeah. She's so young. You know, that's something I've, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh no. It's so far away from the age of consent in that time, which was 21, not even Mm -hmm. 18, um, the age of like maturation. And it's just, she's such a baby. She is such a baby. 
Yeah, and I um I was talking about this book with a book club last year, and someone made a really good point talking about Lydia and her family, and also Lydia and Wickham, and um, how it is statutory rape, but it's not like she's not being forced into it. It's really just that she doesn't know what's going on. And the point this person made was, you know, it's really exploitation, you know, on the part of her family and on the part of Wickham, you know, where these people are just doing whatever they want and not caring about how it affects her. And so, you know, she is, she's too young to understand, you know, she, to, to give consent. Yeah. Um, and there's no one there protecting her and Wickham doesn't care about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just really tragic. You know, she's been abandoned in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of people, and myself included, before they get super familiar with the text, they treat Lydia as though she's like a problem that she's a hurdle for her sisters and not her own tragedy and not her own story. And it's it's an absolutely gut-wrenching thing, especially now as we talk a lot more societally around just the absolute... Um, power imbalance that's involved with underage girls and older men. Um, And this is going to be the bummer part of the podcast episode, everybody, but it is entirely true that up until what, five years ago, there was no real understanding that it is always the adult man's job to say, no, I don't care what the underage girl is saying or doing or believing or wanting. It is always the adult man's job to say no. And Wickham is a predator. He is just fully a predator. Exactly. And I mean, the guy is what, late twenties. Mm-hmm. He's got to be about Mr. Darcy's age. And I think a moment ago I said, that it wasn't rape. What I meant to say was it wasn't assault. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, it wasn't violent. So I wanted rape. to clarify was, that. It yeah, was statutory <laughs> it's still and coercion rape. <laughs> and and yeah, there's still sexual yeah. assault and rape. All that still counts, um, but you know, not violence um, and not something she didn't want to do, but still rape and still very exactly. wrong. So just wanted to make sure no, no one I, misunderstood I that. Um, yeah, and it is like I I grew up in a very conservative culture Mm -hmm. you know i i'm from the bible belt i'll just put it out there Um, that says some things and there was you know a little cluster of us girls who grew up on jane austen and had that romantic Mm -hmm. vision of it and you know the pervading opinion was that lydia is annoying and she's awful and she's just bad and then you know you grow up and you reread it a few times and you're like oh my goodness she's a child yeah She's a kid. She isn't even fully formed yet. And everyone has just written written her off. And it's so sad. And, you know, the last couple of times as I've read it, I've been better at separating, again, those layers of what is Austin doing? Mm -hmm. What do we tend to think that she is doing? And it's really telling what the other characters say about her you know, after she elopes with Wickham. And, you know, most of the people 
her family, Elizabeth, the gardeners are saying, you know, that, you know, yes, she was foolish and she doesn't understand what she's doing, but really focusing on, oh, goodness, we failed her. Yeah. Her parents, you know, this wouldn't have happened if her parents had been more involved and, you know, a little bit stricter with her, Mm -hmm. you know, just so that she wasn't running wild among all these soldiers who are so much older than her. Like, oh my goodness, danger, danger. Um, You know, and then also they're the people who are writing her off in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's really telling who those people are. It's Lydia to an extent, Mm -hmm. not as bad as the others, but still a little bit there. And Lady Catherine Mm -hmm. and Mr. Collins, who says it would be better if your daughter had died. What a monster he is. Screw him. He's awful. He every at least every representation of him on screen or in an adaptation fully understands that he is monstrous and annoying and despicable. And it's like, at least there's that. <laughs> yeah. And I think he is one of those characters who Austin doesn't give a lot of nuance to yeah. because he's not good. Yeah. He is. Those people exist in real life. I've met them where they're just like, there is no nuance to this person. They are perfectly ex- like they are perfectly fine with saying monstrous terrible things and having no forgiveness in their heart and we have all met those people i wish i hadn't yeah yes yeah i mean it is true that the empathy that i mean the motivation for darcy to fix air quotes the situation is twofold in the fact that he obviously wants to protect his sister's reputation at all costs but also just that empathy uh, in a weird way of wanting to just fix a situation for another little girl um and that is obviously the linchpin around which he he becomes a much more acceptable suitor for lizzie but by and large i don't understand fully why darcy as we said we were going to come back to is considered this absolutely like end all be all romantic like goal hashtag goals like it just doesn't make sense to me i've got four words for you colin firth wet shirt yeah and sir andrew davies just sexed him up and threw him at us and we ran with it yeah it's really that simple isn't it it's just like oh yeah hot hot sexy colin firth and it's like man that's like yeah okay this is romance it's like yeah he's cute but he's still a mess (laughs) he's still a mess like yeah i mean i've been married for a while and the hard part is is that uh, marriage is, is really great. I love it. I love my husband. He's freaking awesome. But he was who he was before we got married. And I worry about stressing the romance of change because people yeah. don't. Yeah, it's a really harmful trope that we as a society have accepted that love changes you and you know that if you just love someone hard enough they will become perfect or anything like that it's like no we're 
we are all people. We're all still individuals. And yeah, in a relationship, it's a different dynamic, mm-hmm. but still, ultimately, you're you're the same person. And the only person who can really change you is you. Yeah. Not another person. And, you know, we've really accepted that idea that just the right woman yeah. can change a man. And that's... That's so damaging. It leads so many, you know, people to choose the right or rather the wrong partner Mm -hmm. because they think, oh, well, I can fix them. Yeah. And no, you can't. You're just going to hurt yourself trying. Yeah. You know, either accept them as they are or realize this person is toxic and I am not going to be with them. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're doing an episode on Pygmalion soon. And Ooh, yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. Um, and it, it just rem- it reminds me of like uh, in the our My Fair Lady adaptation. You know, there's the whole ditty. I've grown accustomed to your face. <laughs> and um, first of all, that gets stuck in my head all the time. But also, Same. like for Darcy, that's a lot of it for him. It's just like he's grown accustomed to Lizzie's face he knows her and that's why he's able to open up and be a human being to her and it's like could there be more buddy could you just shove a little more coal on the fire (laughs) yeah there is the hope that you know by being around someone like her is who is so open he will learn Mm -hmm. to show that face to more people um but yeah, he's he's still him. He's still not great. You know, when he comes back in the end um, and is around her family, she's like, oh, my goodness. He's the same way he was when we first met. Like, yeah. I thought he'd gotten nicer. What's happened? It's like, no, Darcy is still Darcy. Darcy is still uncomfortable with, you know, Mrs. Bennett and Lady Lucas and, you know, Mrs. Phillips. These, you know, little flighty old women are still going to make him uncomfortable and he's still going to be rude to them. And yeah, he's still him. I I do think there is more to his relationship with Lizzie where it's not just that he's used to her, mm-hmm. but he, I, okay. I love this idea that Austin has running through Pride and Prejudice of, you know, how we don't value women enough. Yeah. You know, there is this whole string of people who talk to Elizabeth and do not take her seriously. And, oh my goodness, I love how she uses Mr. Collins and Mr. Darcy as foils for each other mm-hmm. because their proposals follow pretty much the same track. You know, they propose in really rude ways, yeah. just incredibly insulting. <laughs> and um, then she refuses them. And they don't believe her. And she... <laughs> yeah. Imagine they... that happening it's in real so... life. <laughs> I would be so angry. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I love this line that Lizzie has when she's refusing Mr. Collins and just like, no, no, really, I mean it. She, you know, she, <laughs> she says, you know, like, Something to the effect of, you know, like, I, you know, you must 
learn to think of me as a rational creature and not as, you know, some elegant female who, you know, is toying with you. And, you know, that's a really strong idea, you know, that women really are or can be, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they are not always educated to be, as we see with Mrs. Bennett and Lydia, but they are capable of rational thought. We have feelings and thoughts and emotions. And just because you decide that we should be happy to receive your proposal does not mean that we are. You know, you can't just assume that we're going to be happy about any proposal that comes our way. And you need to take us seriously when we say something that does not fit in with your perfect little worldview of who you are and what is owed to you. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Collins does not accept that at all. Like months later, he's still rubbing it in Lizzie's face. Um, But I think this is one of the points in Darcy's favor is that he does actually learn to break through that and realize, oh, she's a person just like me. Yeah, She has her own mind and opinions and she can say it and I should take her seriously when she does. And so I think, I think that is part of Mr. Darcy's appeal as Austin intended it. Yeah. And as I think a lot of writers or a lot of readers do recognize that, but yeah, there are still those pockets who aren't thinking of it in those terms where it's, it's really an intellectual romance yeah. in a lot of ways. I agree, especially considering just how deeply that fight is still prevalent in so many modern relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm that I'm tongue tied because I don't want to like talk about my own relationship, but I'm just like very lucky that my husband has always treated me like I'm a person. And I feel mm-hmm. like that is actually a fairly rare thing for a lot of people to experience. Um, and it's, it's breathtakingly sad that that understanding of women being rational creatures and having own goals and wants and self-preservations desires and things like that um, and not reliant on men to have a personality is actually something that is still wildly foreign to people. Um, and it's really depressing. It, Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's 200 years later and we are still having to assert our worth, our value, our rights as human beings. And I don't know, I feel like if Jane Austen were to pop through a time machine, she'd be pretty pissed. Yeah, yeah. She'd be like, we were having these conversations two year, 200 years ago, and you still have this far to go. What did I do that yeah. for? Yeah, why did I stick my neck out? And why did I do this? Um one of the things that wonderfully uh, pisses off those types of men is uh, women having podcasts and talking about literature. <laughs> so yeah. I have to say thank you very much for coming on this show and talking about this with me because you've helped me like this book more, which is which is a huge hurdle. And uh, it's been absolutely lovely. So Becca, how can everybody keep in touch with you and your work? Uh, you can find me on my book blog, which is called Book It With Becca, and that is at bookitwithbecca.wordpress.com. 
And I am on Twitter at BEC underscore H-E-R-E, where I talk about a lot of books and Ginger Rogers. Awesome. Um, So you can expect that. And thank you so much for having me on. I had such a good time. I'm really glad that you enjoyed reading Pride and Prejudice, you know, more this time and seeing the comedy. And I just, I loved our conversation and all the ideas you gave me. (laughs) Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.